Hello, this is uh, Troy Eckert. I'm the CEO and manager of Eckert Land and Acquisition located in Allen, Texas. And what I'd like to talk about this morning is probably something that's pretty critical to most of the investors out there that are looking at what's going to be the forecast for the price of crude oil and natural gas uh, relative to the current uh, collapse in energy prices here in the United States. Um, the two things I would like to tell you is, one, I want to give you a little brief on my background so that way you have some kind of awareness of why I would want to speak about energy prices and, of course, the credibility of any information that I provide for you. Um, I started my career in 1985, and I've been through about four or five of these rodeos where you essentially have major shifts in commodity prices, both down and up. And what I have found is that most investors, whether they're directly involved in energy assets directly or they're investing in energy stocks, very few people uh, understand the real trend or at least the dynamics that causes value to either disappear or increase as commodity prices are traded on the global market. Uh, one of the things I can tell you is that through my career, I've been involved in about every technological change in advance uh, throughout the energy space. Uh, primarily, I've been through the vertical drilling in the 80s, the advent of 3D seismic going into the early 90s, <clears throat> non-conventional resource plays that occurred uh, starting in the late 1980s, <coughs> all the way through the uh, current state of the industry, which of course is horizontal drilling and fracking. And one of the things you have to understand is that the oil and gas industry is very resilient. It's not only resilient as it relates to innovations, it's also very resilient when it comes to uh, looking at how to manage their money and their assets with changing monetary policies and, of course, commodity prices. Today, the biggest element <clears throat> that they're going to deal with, which is part of why my 35-year career is, is helpful, for the first time in U.S. history, at least for the last 75 years, the United States oil and gas industry is dealing with a situation they've never dealt with before. We literally have too much oil and gas readily available in supply versus our current consumption level, and of course that is something we've never had to deal with. It has always been the opposite. It has always been the United States has had to deal with an uh, inbound supply of imported crude oil subject to global supply and geopolitical events. And as an internal consumer, the United States is the world's largest consumer of petroleum oil on a daily basis. Prior to the coronavirus, we were consuming a little over 20 million barrels per day. When you have a scenario where you have a internal combustion or consumption level that is, you know, at one point was almost uh, six to one. We were using six barrels of oil more than we produced back in the 2006 and 2007 uh, period. And the fact is now... Uh, as a result of the successful shale drilling, we were up to about 13 million barrels a day. So essentially 60% of our consumption was being supplied by internal resources of U.S. oil and gas exploration and production companies. That all changed. What changed is the fact that uh, over the last 35 years, we have evolved as a producer and we've evolved based on technology. So when you think about what's causing the current dilemma in the oil and gas industry globally, it's not because of dry holes. It's not because of failures. It's not because of uh, the inability to discover and produce commercial quantities of oil. It's actually the opposite. It's what investors were begging for for 30, 40 years, which is I'd love to own energy assets, 
but I can't do it because it's such a high-risk game. I don't want to drill 50 oil wells vertically to find I might have 10 that produce 20-30% success ratio. I don't want to drill vertical wells that might have a five, six, seven-year economic life, and then i got to start all over again. It's like being handcuffed to a blackjack table. You're forced to play even if you're losing. I don't want to be in an industry where it's driven by tax deductions. A tax deduction is a clear message. You're going to lose money because they're giving you the right to take your losses as a write-off. When you have the IRS, the Internal Revenue Service, is, is advocating, hey, go drill, spend your money, take those risks. We're going to let you take all your losses off your earned income. That is a message that you have a very high probability of losing your money. That has not been the emphasis the last decade. What's really happening is that we took the message clear 10 years ago, drill, baby, drill. And we did drill, baby, drill. But what we did as an industry is we drilled based on technology that NASA uses, technology that's being used by the military for guiding their nuclear subs. We used all the technology being used by live streaming, by all the advances made on the software and hardware that now runs all your iPhones and your Series and your Lexus and Siri do this and Alexis do this. We now have some of the most sophisticated equipment and sophisticated software in the world guiding our drill bits to keep us within our target formations within a matter of inches or feet. We now can drill wells using uh, remote drilling. We can use remote uh, monitoring. Many oil wells are simply monitored with solar panels and digital feedback 24 hours a day to a control center in Houston or Denver, Colorado, where you've got production engineers watching wells 24-7. And if a well moves one slight degree left or right of where it's supposed to be, they're sending somebody out on a specific rework or immediate activation. This is not your grandfather's oil and gas industry. This is the modern, state-of-the-art oil and gas sector. And as a result, like any business, is that once there was a major deficiency in supply, billions upon billions of dollars came to the rescue to solve the problem. No different than what's going on with the coronavirus today. You have one-third of the world's population in shelter, shutdown economic uh, activity at a complete halt in many countries. What you're talking about is every genius in the world is working on solving the coronavirus for a vaccine or a cure. Every single monetary source is figuring out how to reposition themselves to not only help get through this pandemic, but to also figure out where to be positioned on the other side of this as to what industries will be readjusted. The tourism industry may be crippled for quite some time. Airlines may be crippled for quite some time as people are still resident or at least resistant to traveling or staying in hotels in closely uh, close quarters. So what the oil and gas industry received in 2008 when the oil prices skyrocketed to $145 a barrel, they received the same amount of attention, essentially, not quite the same, but, but in a parallel analysis, quite the same as what the coronavirus did. The United States was looking at $145 a barrel. We were talking about airline companies charging baggage fees and there was weight limitations and gas at the pump was 4 to $6 a gallon and industries were imploding because they couldn't manufacture their goods because the price of energy was so high and they couldn't pass it on to their consumer. So the scream from Congress, the scream from the general public was, hey, we need to have windfall profit tax. We need to punish these oil companies for charging us so much. Well, that would be uh, the absolute most ludicrous thing to do, but that was what was being screamed in the streets. Every single 
tree hugger. Every single environmentalist was screaming at the top of their lungs. They're destroying our planet. They're fracking with sand and there's gas coming out of the ground with fire and our water is being ruined, which was all a bunch of nonsense. But at the time, that scream was because the amount that the consumer was paying was so high in the, in the form of each energy unit, each barrel of oil, each MCF of gas, each gallon of gasoline, that the screaming came all the way from Hollywood and their ridiculously false uh, movies all the way down to each little individual screaming that they can't pay for their gasoline because it costs too much. Those same people disappeared the last five years. And why did they disappear? They disappeared. Even their environmental efforts disappeared because of the following reason. They all now got cheaper gas. They got cheaper fuel to run their companies. All their stocks were going up 20 30% because the profit margins were bigger. They were able to go get gasoline for $2 a gallon. They were able to fill their propane tanks for one-fifth of what it cost five years ago. Amazon can drop 100 boxes a day in front of your gate and not charge you a fee. Why is all that happening? Why has the economy boomed the last five years? It's all begin, been because of cheap energy costs. We've been able to contain our energy costs below $60 a barrel, and the entire economy of the United States has benefited from it. Now what you have is you have a situation where the oil and gas industry is now suffering the consequences of success. So success begets success, and what happened is is no different than farming. If we have a low amount of corn grown, Large farming operations go out and get their John Deere tractor, their 24-row plows and planters, and they go plant half of North America with corn. And they all do it at the same time because nobody wants to be a leader. They all want to be a follower. So when corn's short, they all convert their fields. They take these stagnant fields that were dormant. They plow them into corn, and all of a sudden they show up at the grain elevators in 12 months, and they say, we all got corn. And the grain elevator says, I can't hold all that corn. I can only hold the same amount I held last year. So I'm going to take that uh, storage capacity, and I'm going to take the corn that I can afford, and then I'm going to start repelling corn providers by charging them more for storage, and, and I'm going to try to make you so uneconomically driven, you may not even want to harvest your corn. You may want to just plow your crop under because you're not going to get any money, and you're going to lose money compared to what it costs to plow that field and plant that corn. Well, that is the oil and gas industry. We went out, and we got money from Wall Street. The oil and gas industry figured out how to get investors to buy their stock and run their stock prices up. And they figured out how to go get borrowed capital in order to improve, in, enhance, and expand their drilling operation. Because they said, look, the one thing Wall Street's always been scared of is they're scared of the fact that we might drill a dry hole. We've eliminated that. They're afraid we can't replicate our success. We've eliminated that. They were worried that we didn't have enough quantity. They couldn't get enough money behind us because they were afraid we are going to run out of opportunity. It was a finite opportunity. That's not the case. The case is... We're about a, probably running about a 99% success rate on every vertical or every horizontal well drilled in the shell place, non-conventional. We're probably talking about one to five wells per producing unit or spacing unit in each one of these basins. We're talking about one, two, five, ten formations that are potentially viable stacked like a sandwich where each zone has its own reserves. We're talking about cash flow heavily loaded up front because these wells produce with such high volumes initially, like shaking the three-liter Coke versus a 16-ounce Coke. When you shake that three-liter Coke, it literally comes out in larger quantities, but when it settles down, it still has 90% more content than a 16-ounce Coke, which comes out faster and harder, but it's empty within a matter of minutes. The country is now the benefactor of successful oil and gas. So my point to you today is really about what do we do about all this? Do, do we understand where we're at in the energy sector, and do we understand what's about to take place? 
Well, let me lay it on the line for you. Saudi Arabia and Russia, I believe, orchestrated this little game of chicken that they're playing. I don't believe for a minute either one of them walked away from that meeting and said, hey, we're both not going to get along, so let's take a knife and cut our own left leg off. You cut yours off and I'll cut mine off, so that way we can both bleed $300 billion worth of losses from our cash reserves while we destroy the global energy market. I don't believe that was the case. I believe what the case was is that the uh, Saudi leading the OPEC group took a rogue position without consulting OPEC and without considering their OPEC members, and they looked at Russia and said, look, we got a big problem here. We had a customer that was burning up 20 million barrels a day. They were only at 3.8 million barrels of production internally inside the United States, and that was falling, free-falling, and that was in 2008. When the United States shale industry jumped up and produced 9 million barrels a day, that means we added about 5.2 million barrels to the global supply. Well, nobody else wanted to choke their wells back. Nobody else wanted to give up their territory. So we ended up seeing this price crash in 2014 and 15. Well, that was based on the cost of extraction. They, they being OPEC and Russia and everybody else, figured the U.S. shale industry could never go back and revitalize the shale industry because it cost us too much to produce. But we, we proved them wrong. And what we did was we proved that we were very successful at innovation and we created a fabrication and an exploitation industry, not an exploration industry. And so now we know we have these huge basins loaded to the hilt with hydrocarbons. We know that there's layers and layers and billions and billions of barrels of oil and trillions of cubic feet of gas that will fuel this country for the next 300 years. But we also knew we had to get our costs down. We had to make it productive because nothing moves without greed. Nothing moves without profit. Wall Street could care less what happens to the oil and gas industry unless they can make a profit. So the oil and gas industry got together. They figured out the smartest, best, most innovative ways. They used the highest technology uh, application they could in both software and hardware. They turned their drilling rigs into literally Star Wars walking um, uh, rigs. They, they now have individual components of these drilling activity and completion activity. They're all done by remote. They're done by uh, computers. And so now what we have is the, is the most advanced state-of-the-art fleet of drilling rigs in the history of drilling by some of the highest advanced technology and software known to the oil and gas industry. And we rebounded in less than 18 months. And we continue to drill. Saudi Arabia and Russia and the rest of the OPEC members said, oh my gosh, we played chicken with the U.S. and we lost. They kicked our tail. So they started cutting back their production because they had to make room They had to make room for the additional barrels that we were producing as a country because we were going to consume our own oil, but more importantly is we weren't going to back off because we no longer wanted to be the victim of price manipulation like the 1970s oil embargo. We could not have our country paying $145 a barrel. It destroyed our economics of our businesses, our day-to-day businesses, and our, our residents, our consumers, our citizens were paying the price for failing to protect our energy. So what'd we do? We innovatively started increasing our production. We figured this game out. We got better and smarter as an industry. Now, all of a sudden, we're sitting here making close to 13 million barrels a day. Our president, President Trump, very clearly said to China and the rest of the world, we are putting America first. We don't care about G7. We don't care about the accord. We're tired of being the whipping country of everybody else's manipulation because most countries are not run by democracy. They're run by dictatorship or communism. So because we pushed back on tariffs and because we pushed back on sanctions and because we said we've had enough under our current president, there's a little meeting that happened. And it wasn't the meeting that was publicized between Russia and the Saudi prince. It was a meeting that said, 
the future of our countries, the next 10 to 40 years of our country is being jeopardized. Okay, you've got Saudi Arabia making 10 million barrels a day. They only use 3.5 million barrels. They've got to dump 6.5 million barrels on the open market. Well, if the U.S. produces another 6.5 million barrels in the next 24 to 48 months, we probably would have done it in five years, maybe six years. All of a sudden now, Saudi's wondering who they're going to sell 6.5 million barrels to because the U.S. is not only producing enough oil for our own consumption, we're probably going to have access, that we're going to flood the global market and, and take care of our Asian customers and our Caribbean customers and our Latin American customers. So Saudi and Russia got together in a meeting before the public meeting and said, look, we're going to tell everybody we're mad at each other. We're going to tell each other, the whole world, that we're going to have this standoff. We're going to see who can last the longest. But we both have spent the last five years building up about a half a trillion dollar war chest. And it's going to be painful. We're going to take a couple of hundred, three hundred billion dollar loss each. But what we're going to do is we're going to destroy not only the current production levels of the U.S. energy industry. More importantly, what we're going to do is we're going to derail the capital. We're going to make every capital provider that's on Wall Street nervous, nervous, nervous about ever redeploying capital back into the energy space for shale drilling and exploration because this will be the second time in five years we've destroyed their market. And when this takes place, we're going to ramp up our production. We're going to show the world that we can easily add 5 million, 6 million barrels a day. And that puts the U.S. shale producers on notice. Don't produce too much because at any moment we can open the valve and flood it and we can crush you. So now when you go to your, your money uh, uh, your money source and you try to figure out exactly what it's going to take to attract money, they're always going to have a bottom line disclosure. What happens if, if Saudi and Russia do again what they did in 2020? What if they flood the market arbitrarily and they decide to dump 5 million barrels in the market? What does that do to your model? What does that do to your drilling budget? What does that do to your production? How are you positioned to, to withstand a four, five, six month withdrawal of production? So that has changed the, the world for the next 10 years, 20 years. It has changed the U.S. energy industry. So what I believe you're going to see is this little game of chicken that's being played between Saudi and Russia is really all about trying to make sure they have dominated two things. They want to dominate their market share of their production to assure they're both going to be able to sell 10 million barrels a day and not see that decrease in the next decade. They're also assuring the fact that they have crippled the oil and gas industry, not because we can't produce, not because we're not drilling 99% success wells. They are basically have put a – they've tainted us from the standpoint of capital commitment, and that capital will be tepid. They will be reserved. And so when the money comes back, it's going to come back in spoonfuls, not bucketfuls. So we're going to be deprived of capital for five to ten years, and that five or ten years means we're going to be limited to maybe nine to ten million barrels a day. We won't see energy independence. We'll see a lot of our uh, brothers and sisters in the oil and gas industry disappear. We'll see a lot of the weak, poorly managed companies disappear. We'll see assets traded, and there'll be an accumulation period for the next three to five years. But let me tell you what's going to happen also. You're going to see oil level off here at about $20 a barrel and above. That's about as low as it's going to go. You're going to see oil climb back very quickly over $40 a barrel by Christmas, December of 2020. You're going to see oil prices start moving between $55 and $60 a barrel by mid to late uh, Q3 of 2021. It's my personal belief you're going to see $75 to $90 oil in 2023. And the reason you're going to see that is, is that this whole game of chicken with uh, supply and price by Saudi and Russia, it's deep. It's so deep, it didn't affect the shale industry in the United States. It affected the oil and gas industry on a global magnitude. 
You have projects that have been in the works for three and four years with soft costs and engineering and planning and budgeting and capital commitments. Those capital commitments are being canceled. People are looking around saying, why would I want to add more supply and more drilling and more exploration, more 3D seismic, more more platforms? Why do I want to do all of that knowing that we can have our legs cut out from under us as soon as Saudi or, or Russia decide to play this game again? So the very fundamentals of all these projects have been removed. And every one of these countries, every one of these oil and gas energy investment or exploration companies have just decided we're going to have to pull back our horns. It's going to take us 24 to 36 months to heal. We're now going to look at all future projects based on this new uh, caveat that we weren't aware of, which is let's flood the market to destroy our competition. And that is all going to be factored into it. So what you're going to see is you're going to see these horizontal wells that have been drilled in the U.S., they're going to do their natural decline, like that three-liter Coke I used as an example. We fracked them. We've completed them. We've shaken up the reservoir. We're going to get back that first 10, 20, 30 percent of reserves in the first two years. Then the wells are going to decline. They're going to level off. But they're going to be about, oh, 60 percent lower than they were the day I opened the well up. So now what you're talking about is you're talking about production that essentially is going to drop one, two, three million barrels worth of production over the next 24 to 36 months. We will no longer be seeing an incline, at least for the foreseeable next 36 months, but what's going to happen is, is prices are going to go up dramatically. I don't think they're going to get much above $100 a barrel. I, I think that's kind of our top end. Over $100 a barrel, alternative energy starts becoming a reality. And on that note, by the way, at these kind of prices, oil, virtually every renewable energy out there is uneconomical. I don't care if it's solar. I don't care if it's nuclear. I don't care if it's coal. Essentially, low prices fix low prices, bodily by getting people to start saying, hey, we've got to have this. But what it also does, it, it eliminates our own competition for energy uh, alternatives, which is everybody else just became uneconomical. That windmill is not making a profit. It's losing its tail. So in the end, when we have a scenario where we're looking at massive global shutdown of projects, forward planning, we just took a five-year bite out of future growth in the supply side for replacement oil and gas as these wells around the world start to decline. Vertical wells in the United States, there's 724,000 vertical wells, and I would imagine less than 10% of them produce over 100 barrels a day. That means you've got roughly 650,000 650, vertical wells in this country that are really half or uneconomical below $30 a barrel. They're going to get shut in. They're not going to be reworked. They're not going to be fixed up again. So what you're going to see is a major change in the supply chain, and that's going to resonate with very high oil prices over the next 36 to 48 months. So from my perspective, um, I do enjoy watching uh, somebody clean out the garage. I do think there was careless, overpaid, greedy companies that were backed by private equity groups that were loading up their own pocketbooks with stock and bonuses. I do see that there was a lot of greed taking place in the service side where people were charging more and more and more. But the news for you listening is that the oil and gas industry really got cut off of capital last summer. By about June of 2019, money dried up. There was no more money being sent by Wall Street. So we were 12 months ahead of this current coronavirus nightmare. So we already, as an industry, were prepared to have much different go-forward budgets and planning. The coronavirus was probably the next $20 drop. So $20 of this $30 drop is coronavirus driven because of expected lack of demand. You combine the game of chicken with the drop in demand, you get $20 oil and it destroys the underpinnings of a normal industry. Now, let's talk about what we do about all this. The fact of the matter is, is that you have a choice. You can be ignorant 
and avoid learning and listening and understanding where the oil and gas market is, but then you're not a very good stock investor. I need to know as an investor how Amazon's going to fare if oil goes to $75 or $90 a barrel. Are they going to start putting a delivery fee based on the size and the value and the, and the quantity of boxes you have delivered to your house? What's going to happen to transportation, cars and fuels and auto sales? What's going to happen to delivery of products of sheetrock and lumber and timber when it takes more money to go cut it, chop it, mill it, deliver it? So when you don't think about oil and gas, you're essentially saying, I'm ignorant of the very fundamental that drives the U.S. economy, okay? So I also suggest not only should you learn what's going to happen in the oil and gas industry, you should also measure it against how it affects each stock you hold, each industry you're looking at, how it's going to affect your real estate. When your building that you're renting to tenants now has uh, electricity up by 40 50%. When you start looking at geographical location of your building based on traffic flow, when you start thinking about consumers having less disposable income because their electricity bill is higher, they're not going to pay for that higher duplex rent or apartment rent. They're going to find something one step down. There is a trickle effect, and that trickle effect is is that oil and gas is the underpinning of everything that we do. Now, if it were me, and I am me, what I would do is I would do what I always do. I study, I think, I study, I think, and what I try to determine is where we're going to be on an optimist and a pessimist. I like to be practical, I like to be realistic, but I look at it and say, if nothing changes for the next six months and we're at $25 oil, I'm perfectly okay. These horizontal shell wells that are being drilled, they have 25 to 50-year economic lives. I don't care about the next 180 days. I just need to make sure I don't have too much debt, which I don't. I also need to make sure that during this lull, where should I be repositioning my money? I should be looking at stocks that have great big portfolios of shell plays with a lot of production, and their stock price is almost down proportionate to the price of oil. Huh, why does that make sense? Well, you think Exxon's only worth $37 a share instead of $65 a share? Absolutely not. Exxon is down proportionate to the drop in the price of oil, which is literally half of where it was 60 days ago. So if oil's going to be back to what I'm telling you, which is 40 to $75 a barrel, to me that tells me Exxon stock is 60 to $80 a share price. The same thing applies all the way down the line. I'm looking for companies that hold big reserves whose stock value has been beaten up and, and deteriorated in stock price as a result, not of the stock market trend or the negative movement out of stocks. It's because the underpinning of their value is the reserves they own and what that value of those reserves are. So as a stock player, I'm looking for companies who have big pocketbooks, staying power. They're going to be the aggregators and accumulators of all these weaker bankrupt companies' assets, and they also are going to benefit from the pure parallel relationship between stock price and reserve value. I'm also looking for the little one-offs. I'm looking for the companies that have maybe a little more favorable edge. Maybe it's not Exxon I buy. Maybe I buy Continental Resources, who dropped from $60 a share, and now it's trading at $7.75 incredibly premier operator, great position, great stock. I'm not a stock forecaster, nor am I recommending you buy or sell it. I'm personally buying Continental stock. I like it. I like it because when you look at the stock value, even if it rides up no more than uh, double where it's at today, the fact of the matter is it has an incredible position of coming out of this uh, current coronavirus uh, collapse. It comes out in much stronger position than it was even before. That's because they're going to accumulate and buy more and more distressed competition of oil and gas producers in the same basins that they play, which is the Williston Basin and the Anadarko Basin. I'm going to wrap up this particular blog because I don't want to get too long-winded by saying the following. I've been doing this for 35 years. 
I believe very candidly that I know what I'm talking about, and I believe it's based on my guess, my assumption, my facts. It's based on my instinct. I've been through about five of these rodeos before. Um, I feel I'm 100% in line with what's going to happen. And I see Marathon and some of these other companies writing their blogs about they think oil is going to be at $22 a barrel. Let me tell you something. The 60% decline curve in horizontal wells and capital budgets being slashed by 30 50 75%, and a third of the industry going broke, bankrupt, or unable to pay their bills. And with a global market of all these major projects being canceled and cut, not just here, but in Norway and in the North Sea and all over the world, I can assure you the day of reckoning is about 18 months out. When everybody stands up, everybody says coronavirus is gone. Wow, we misdodged that bullet. It was painful, but we got out of it. And everybody goes back out to eating at restaurants and driving cars and goes back to work. You're going to look around and find out we're missing about 6 to 8 million barrels of oil and supply around the globe. And you're going to find that Saudi Arabia and Russia go, yeah, that was a fun game of chicken. Now watch the other side of this game of chicken. First, we flooded the market to get rid of our competition. Now that the price of oil is up to $55 to $75 a barrel, guess what we do? We're going to actually go back and cut our oil back from 10 million barrels to 9 to 8.5 million barrels and watch it run to $75 to $100 a barrel to make back the $300 billion they just put on a bet to destroy the U.S. energy industry. I'm Troy Eckerd. I'm known as the uh, Talking with the Texan, and the fact of the matter is is that I'm available if you ever want to ask me questions. My email address is teckard at eckardglobal.com. That's T-E-C-K-A-R-D at E-C-K-A-R-D global.com. You can call me at 800-527-8895, and I look forward to adding these blogs about every other day for a while to see whether or not I'm making a lot of value and sense to my listeners. But I do know what I'm doing, and I will tell you ground floor information of what's happening in the field and where my opinion changes or it alters based on facts and figures. You guys have a great day. Thanks again.